Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Father, we are uh, thankful again for your love and mercy and grace. We're thankful for what you're doing in this church, Lord, and and, um, in this community, in the hearts of our people. We're thankful for what you're doing all around the world, and we love you and we serve you. Father, I want to pray right now for Dr. Martin. I pray you would just uh, give him, uh, Lord, the the power to speak your word, the the clarity to say the things you have him to say. And I pray through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would use him in a mighty and powerful way for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much, Pastor. Slamat pagi, saudara, saudara sekalian dalam nama Yesus Christus. I thought I'd throw a little language out there also. <laughs> um, it's, it's been so good to uh, meet Raphael and his wife and hear about their ministry uh, in Guatemala. And um, that's, just, that's just been such a joy. Um, you know, I, I was, that's a little bit of Indonesian I just gave you there. My students from time to time will ask me, well, Dr. Martin, do you speak Indonesian? And I say, well, I actually speak it fairly well, I think. But I do speak Southern Indonesian, if you get my drift. And if I spoke Spanish, I, would, I suspect I would speak Southern Spanish. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, Brother Raphael, Pastor Raphael, he, he keeps leading in this, what is this deal? What, what is I'm not trying to say that. What, what, anyway, uh, all this war eagle stuff. Um, I, I, every time I look around and I notice that a big portion of the uh, uh, congregation is silent. And as I said in the earlier service, uh, I'm assuming that uh, that the rest of you are primarily University of Georgia fans. I, I, uh, I, 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 you have to you have to play your whole pastor. You have to play to your whole audience. Um, uh, might be some Crimson Tide fans in here. I don't know. Georgia Tech. I, wow. This is, this is a mixed bunch. I got to tell you, I'm not down with any of that. I, um, um, but that's another conversation for another day. I'm, uh, I'm none of those. I'm not sure. Anyway. Um, but this language thing, it's an amazing it's an amazing matter. I remember when my family and I were first in Indonesia, and the f- very first Sunday we were there, we gathered with this small congregation in worship. Didn't understand a word that was being said. We walked in, and people would speak to us in Indonesia. We'd just kind of shake our heads. And, and um, as we gathered and g- gathered into the seats, uh, you, we just, you just had to look around and watch people. You know, When they stood up, <laughs> we stood up. <laughs> When they sat down, we sat down. When uh, they bowed their heads and closed their eyes, we did the same. Uh, When they sang and we recognized the melody or the tune, the music, we would sing out in English. It was just an interesting, fascinating experience. And that first worship in Indonesia with my family and Indonesian brothers and sisters is still very vivid in my mind. And what I remember from that is didn't understand a word that was being said, but it was amazing. 
We had traveled to the other side of the world. And we were there gathered with people we couldn't even talk to. And yet there was a oneness. We were there with brothers and sisters in Christ. That was the most amazing experience. God has a people all over the world. Right here in western Georgia, Guatemala, Indonesia. He has gathered them and he continues to gather them. And that's what we're about this weekend, isn't it? I want to ask you to turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. might seem, as you glance over these opening verses, this might seem to you to be a, a bit of an odd text for a sermon during a global missions conference. Um, um, I hope to uh, convince you otherwise here in just a few moments. It's a covenant that God makes with Israel. He enters into covenant. What follows chapter 19 is chapter 20 of Exodus, and it's there that God lays down the stipulations for the covenant. Uh, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. Now, in order to maintain that relationship, this is how you must live. And he gives the Ten Commandments and the additional instructions that follow from that. We think about covenant, there are really a number of covenants that we discover in the Bible, aren't there? Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Some refer to that text as the first gospel found in the Bible. After our first parents fell into sin, the Lord spoke and he said to Satan, to the serpent, he said, I'm going to put enmity or hatred or warfare between you and the descendant of Adam and Eve. There's one who is coming, and he's going to do battle against you. And it continues there in verse 15. He's going to be hurt in that process. And in fact, the Messiah did come and do battle against Satan and against sin and against death. And in that battle, he was hurt. In fact, he was not only hurt, he was put to death on a cross. And he was laid in a grave. But I'm telling you, the tomb couldn't hold him. And he came out, and thus he fulfilled the other part of that prophecy, that promise, that covenant, that he would defeat Satan and sin and death. He would deal a death blow against Satan. The covenants continue. The promises of God continue through the Old Testament. There's the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, as he promises to make Abraham name great amongst the nations to give him a child, a son, and ultimately many descendants and a land in which they would live and do marvelous things through that nation. That covenant was handed down. That uh, promise was handed down to Isaac and to Jacob and to all those others in that family as it grew and grew and grew. We have here the covenant that God enters into with his own people. There's the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel chapter 7, in which God promises David that he will have a descendant who will sit upon the throne of Israel, not for a few years, but he will sit upon an eternal throne. We have then the covenant, the new covenants of the prophets Ezekiel and Jeremiah, which point us even farther toward the future. And then we come to the New Testament. The word testament simply means covenant. A testament is a covenant. It's an agreement. It's a promise. 
Sometimes we think of the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament as the Old Testament is the promise of what? Or a promise of whom? Can you tell me? Christ Jesus, the Messiah. The Messiah, the Redeemer. And the New Testament is the fulfillment of that. We come to Matthew chapter 1 and the angel speaks to Joseph and says to Joseph, your betrothed Mary is with child by the Holy Spirit and she's going to give birth to a son and you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The very name means the Lord saves. And Matthew goes on to report that all of this, the birth of the Messiah, all of this took place exactly as prophesied by the Old Testament prophets. It's all one story, isn't it? The story of God's redemption. Let's look at Exodus chapter 19 and see where this particular covenant text fits into the story. We're going to read beginning in verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, in fact, they did not merely receive permission to leave the land by Pharaoh, he thrust them out, didn't he? He finally had enough. Get out. And the Lord took them out. And on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim uh, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called him out of the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. There are a couple of phrases here that I want to draw your attention to. Very simple outline, if there is even an outline this morning. Two very simple phrases here. The Lord says through Moses to the people of Israel, the whole earth is mine. It's all his. He created it. He spoke and it came into existence. He rules over it sovereignly and providentially. It's all his. We recognize this practically, don't we? Not only theologically, but practically. When we're in great need, to whom do we call out? The Lord God. Perhaps we've looked here and we've looked there. We've tried everything and, uh, and still our need has not been met. As we cry out to the Lord. We recognize the truth of the scripture text that our God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And in fact, folks, as far as I can tell, he also owns the, cattle, uh, the hills upon which they graze. It is all his. And, for, and he gives it. To those who are his, freely and graciously and lovingly. We understand this. The whole earth is his. He has made it and he owns it and he rules over it. A couple of thoughts. As I think about this phrase, the whole earth is mine. There are a couple of phrases or a couple of thoughts that come to my mind. Number one, God could have chosen any nation on the face of the earth that he had that he desired. He didn't have to choose Israel. 
In fact, when he chose Israel, he actually was just choosing Abram. There was no nation to choose. Remember in Deuteronomy, Moses reminded the people of Israel. He said, he said um, uh, the Lord did not choose you because you were great in number, or because you were mightier than other nations. In fact, they were nothing. But he chose you because he loved you. Determined to put his love, set his love upon you. God actually made Israel into a nation. But he didn't have to. He could have chosen another nation. He could have raised up another man and given him descendants. It's kind of humbling, isn't it? Nothing particularly special about Israel. God could have chosen another. When you think about it, it's kind of humbling when we think about ourselves as individuals and as families and as a church, as a congregation. If we fail, does God fail? No. You know, you'll hear some of these contemporary uh, sermons and you, you hear uh, the preacher talk about God and what he's trying to do. He's got all these grand, grandiose plans and he wants to do these great things. He wants to do this. He wants to do that. But at every turn, he seems to be thwarted and frustrated. Thwarted and frustrated by what or by whom? By us, his creatures. You know, he wants to do so much. But he just can't get it done because we're not faithful enough or we will not give enough. Or... That's, that's an amazing thought. That's a, it's a fascinating thought. The creator frustrated and thwarted by the creature. I'm going to tell you the God that I read about in the scriptures is the God who does whatsoever he pleases. Now, even Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan king, understood this in his testimony before Daniel. Ah, now I know that this God, your God, is the God who does whatever he pleases both amongst the hosts of heaven and the armies of earth. And no man can stay his hand and ask, what are you doing? As if to hold him back. God does whatever he pleases. The Apostle Paul put it clearly in Ephesians 1.11. This is the God who accomplishes all things after the counsel of his own will. This is the God who's active in his world. This is a God who is, is doing what he intends to do. And the Savior, we do, not, we do not serve a frustrated Savior. He has a people. And they're in every tribe and language and nation and tongue. And he's getting them. And he will get them. He didn't have to have Israel. It's kind of humbling. <laughs> kind of humbling, he doesn't have to have me. He doesn't have to have you. He can cause the stones to cry out if we fail. God will have his way and he will accomplish his purposes. It's kind of humbling when we think about it. On the other hand, it's very encouraging, isn't it? God did choose Abraham. And he did choose Israel. And he did great things for her and through her and by her. God did choose us. And saved us. God did choose you as a congregation. God has saved you and raised you up and gathered you together. And he has put you here this weekend to consider what he is doing and what you will do with him across the globe. He didn't have to include us in what he's doing, but he has included us. And that's an amazing 
thought, isn't it? The whole earth is mine. The whole world is mine. Didn't need Israel. Could have chosen anyone. There's another thought that when I think about this phrase, uh, the whole earth is mine, another thought that comes to mind, this God is no mere national deity. The ancient Israelites even seemed to think like this. Certainly the other nations did. And that is that every nation had its own God. Uh, and the Old Testament is full of the names of the, na- the nation's gods. There's Milcom, there's Baal, there are the Ashtaroth. There are uh, all of these gods, they're uh, Kamosh. And in fact, if you were to turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 20 and read a story there about a battle that takes place, uh, Ahab, King Ahab of Israel, was fighting against King Ben-Hadad of Syria. And they had fought this, this, this battle up in the mountains. And Israel had gotten the better of Syria. And so the Syrians began to reason, and they put two and two together, and this is what they came up with. Well, the reason that we lost is we were battling Israel up in the mountains. That's where their God dwells. That's where he lives. If we could lure them down into the valleys, if we could lure them down to the plains, that's where our God Baal resides. Kind of a, using a sports analogy, kind of a home field advantage. So if we can get them down here on the plains, our God can take over and overpower their God. Let me tell you, not a chance. The God of Israel is no mere national God. He is the God of all creation. He is the God who says of himself, I am the Lord God. There is no other like me. He's no near national deity. It is to him that all peoples everywhere are accountable. And it is to him that all peoples everywhere must come in order to be saved. I guess a New Testament counterpart to this is that text in Acts chapter 17 when the Apostle Paul is preaching there in Athens. You know, he's walked through the city. And he's discovered all this religious stuff, this religious paraphernalia. And he begins to speak to the Athenians and he says, you know, I see that you're a very religious people, okay? You have all these altars to this God and to that God. In fact, you're pretty smart. In order to cover all your bases, just in case you've missed something. I see you even have an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. Let me tell you who that God is. He says, that's the God, not these other supposed gods. That's the God who made us all. He made me a Jew. He made you Greeks. Not only that, but he has determined where we will live and how long our lives will be. And today, he demands that all people everywhere repent. There's only one God. Only one God to whom the peoples of the earth must come and in whom they will find salvation and redemption. The whole earth is mine. God could have chosen anyone he wished, but he chose Israel. Today, he could have chosen any church, anyone that he wished. Obviously, he intends to do something right here and through you 
It ought to be an encouragement as you gather this weekend. There's no mere national deity. There's a um, second phrase here that I want you to take note of. The Lord says, you will be, Israel will be for me a priestly kingdom, a kingdom of priests. What does a priest do? There are actually kind of two spheres or areas of priestly ministry. The first is vertical. A priest waits upon the Lord. A priest serves God. He brings worship and praise before the Lord. He obeys God. He does the Lord's bidding. But that's not all. He also has a horizontal aspect of his ministry. Not only does he serve the Lord, but he serves others. In fact, he is the one in the Old Testament scheme who stands as a mediator between man and God. It is the priest who receives the sacrifices, the offerings from men and then offers them up to the Lord. And so we read about our own high priest, great high priest, who does that very thing. All those animal sacrifices of the Old Testament, the bulls, the goats, the pigeons, all of that, the writer of Hebrews tells us none of that. It had to be done every day. And none of that really took away sin. It simply pointed those Old Testament saints toward the one who would take away sin. Abraham looked to that one. And believe the promises of God. And Paul tells us in Romans 4 that God counted his faith as righteousness. All that is pushing us. Pushing us as we read the scriptures. Pushing us toward the fulfillment of all the prophecies in Jesus Christ. A priest is one who waits upon the Lord. Who serves the Lord. But also mediates or carries the good news of God's salvation and redemption to others. And so Israel was to be a kingdom of priests. She as a nation was to wait upon the Lord, serve him, bring before him worship and praise. But she was also to stand amongst the nations and declare to the nations of the world the good news of God's redemption. Now Israel never seemed to get that, did she? She seemed always to think it was about herself. You ever known anybody like that? You ever known any churches like that? It's all about us. About our comfort. About our desires. Oh, no, 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 no. It's never merely about us. Any more than it was merely about Israel. But Israel just never seemed to get it. In fact, even the disciples seemed to struggle. Do you remember in Acts 1... When the disciples were standing there in the very presence of the resurrected Jesus. And they had a question they wanted to ask him. And they asked him, Master, is it now? Lord, is it now? Oh, they were expectant. They were eager. Is it now? Are you, are you going to restore Israel? Go put Israel back at the top of the heap? It's kind of all about us. Remember that? And Jesus said, no, 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 no. Don't worry about that. I have something more important for you to do. And that is to preach the gospel, beginning in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. You are to be priests in this sense. You are to take the message of God's redemption 
to the nations of the world. They finally got it. They began to preach. The gospel flowed throughout the then known world. The church was established and it's still growing and God is still gathering his peoples. God would have us to know that we are a kingdom of priests. In fact, the Apostle Peter picks up this very terminology in one of his letters and says of the church that we are a priestly kingdom. And so, what will we do with this little bit of information? This little tidbit of information. Will we be like Israel? I'm, I've been so encouraged. I've so much enjoyed being with you this weekend and seeing what the Lord is doing here. But we still always need to ask ourselves this question. Are we truly being faithful? Are we doing all that God would have us to do? A number of years ago, I heard a pastor, an older pastor, tell a story about preaching. He said, I was preaching, and we were having a missions emphasis in the church. It came to the end of the sermon, end of the service, we're almost there. Some of you are glad, some of you are, maybe some of you are not glad. Anyway, we're coming to the end here in just a moment or two. He said, we came to the end, and we prayed, and stood down front, and we began to sing. And he had issued a very strong plea for those in his congregation to listen to the Lord. Perhaps the Lord was speaking to some even that morning and directing them to the very nations, to the very ends of the earth. And he said, I was standing there, and as we began to sing, a young lady stepped out from one of the pews and began to make her way down. And he said, at that very moment, every fiber of my being began to cry out, God. That's not what I meant. What was his struggle? What do you suspect? What was his problem? Who was that? It was his daughter. Lord, I'm glad for you to send other people's children, but not mine. Glad for you to use other people's bank accounts, but not mine. Oh, I know we've got some prayer warriors in the church, and I tell you, they hold up. It's kind of like the you know the, the, the uh, those who assisted Moses, you know, in the battle, and they would hold his hands up. They, they grew so weary, his arms. Uh, Lord, I know we've got some mighty prayer warriors in this congregation, and they do what they do, and that's gr- brothers, sisters. It is to this that God has called us. He has given to us what the Apostle Paul called this ministry of reconciliation. We have received the gospel, not merely to enjoy it for ourselves, but to be a kingdom of priests and to take that gospel to those who do not have the gospel. It is this, to this he has called us, to the greatest of sacrifices, to the greatest giving, to be 
fully in. I guess the question that's before us this morning is will I as an individual, will we as families, will you as a congregation really understand what it is to be a congregation of priests? And not only the great responsibility and obligation that is laid upon us, but the great joy. I sometimes say to students, if you've never shared the gospel with someone who has never heard it, you probably just don't get it. That's the most, that's the most amazing experience. It is to this that God has called us. It is to this that God directs us and sends us. We are a kingdom of priests beginning right here in our own Jerusalem and out into our Judeas and Samarias and, yes, even to the ends of the earth. We're going to close in just a moment. We're going to sing closing hymn. Your pastor is going to stand here at the front. And there might be any number of reasons why someone might make their way here to the front. Congregation this size, there's bound to be some desperate needs right now. And maybe your church family doesn't even know about the crisis you're facing. You know, you need to come and share. Maybe not some of the details that you wouldn't put out publicly, but you need to come and say to this congregation that is gathered, I'm hurting. We're hurting. Will you pray for me, for my family? We're in this thing together, folks. You need to gather brothers and sisters around you. And this is not a bad time to come and just say, church, pray for me. It might be that the Lord has saved you. Oh, this is the message that we take to the nations, isn't it? That we're all sinners under the wrath and the condemnation, the judgment of God. Can't save ourselves, but there's one who has come. And pay the penalty, the price due our sins. And now the message is those who will turn from their sins and turn by faith and embrace him. Will have their sins forgiven. And have abundant and eternal life. And maybe you've heard that message. And you've come savingly by faith to Christ Oh, we'd love to hear your testimony this morning. I, we invite you to come and share. That. You don't come up here to get saved. I once heard a preacher put it this way. He said, you know, um, Jesus is a Savior who's not far off. Uh, uh, he's not far off at all. In fact, he's even closer than the tips of your fingers. Wherever there's a prayer for mercy, there you'll find Jesus. And perhaps you've cried out to him and he saved you. Perhaps you've not. And you can cry out even now. But if you would come and share with us what the Lord has done in your life, we would rejoice with you and we would pray for you and come alongside and walk with you. That's what we do in church, isn't it? There might be other matters that you would share. You've been a part of this weekend and you see what the Lord is doing at Rosemont Baptist Church and you're not formally a member here. You say, I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of what God's doing here. The congregation is gathered. You need to come and share with the congregation your desire to become a part of what God is doing here.
It might be that there are those whom God is speaking to even now and saying, I want you to go. And you don't even know what that means. It scares you to death. Maybe you're looking at one of your children, kind of squirming and moving around, and you're wondering, boy, surely the Lord's not speaking to him, speaking to her. Well, maybe he is. Be a good time for you as a family to come and ask this church to pray for you and pray for that child. This Lord does a work in his or her life, or maybe an older person. Give your life to take the gospel to the nations. Maybe you've been unfaithful in other matters and you just need this church to encourage you to pray for you. Whatever it might be. But I tell you, we are a kingdom of priests. And we have this great obligation and this great joy of taking the gospel to the world. Folks, without that gospel, they are without hope. It was over in Indonesia in 2004, right after the great tsunami. Never seen anything like it. Devastated. As we drove from the airport to the house where we'd be staying for two weeks, we stopped at a field, the edge of a field. And it was a little bit smaller than the football field, and all the soil was freshly turned. As we stood there, they explained to us right here at our feet, are buried over 47,000 bodies. And you know, you just know that if not all of those, almost every one of those went out into eternity without the gospel and without hope. God has given to us the privilege, the joy of taking the gospel to those who do not have it. We are a kingdom of priests. Father, have your way with us. You have spoken to us from your word this morning. You've given us direction. We are to take this message of good news. We're to take it to those who are near and far. And whatever that means in the individual lives who are here, in families, in this congregation, Father, have your way with us this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. Use the Contact Us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.